want to take a few minutes to tell you about our latest sponsor, Benevity. Benevity is a company I know really well. Not only are they led by wonderful people who are driven by purpose and a desire to make a positive difference to the world, they're also global leaders in their field. So Benevity's technology facilitates workplace giving, volunteering, as well as grants management. It helps employees to deliver positive and meaningful impact through the support of different causes and different charities. And I know from personal experience, having used it only last week, that it really works and it's effective and efficient. So I wanted to give to a cause. I wanted my employee to match it. It all happened through through clicks online. Check them out. Go to the website, benevity.com. Highly recommend checking them out as a potential for your corporate, your business. Let's get back to the show. That was a really interesting story around you know, understanding, I guess, some of the barriers, but also who are your key influences and how can you actually work to understand their motivations, their fears, and work with them to, to try and create that change as well. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purpose Podcast with Julia Jackson. Julia is a Head of Purpose and Sustainability at KiwiBank. KiwiBank, as far as banks go, is a unique proposition. It is a B corporation, therefore it's focused on both purpose and profit. Julia has a fascinating career so far. She's worked in the travel and hospitality sectors. She's worked in Guatemala. She returned home to a dream job with the Sustainable Business Network, and this really gave the determination to focus her professional career on purpose and making a positive difference to people's lives. Can I just ask you, whatever platform you're on, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, if you can hit that follow button, it really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy the episode. Julia Jackson, welcome to Purposely. Kia ora, Mark. Thanks for having me. Kia ora. You are the Head of Purpose and Sustainability at Kiwi Bank. What a wonderful title. Thank you. If you're in an elevator or someone asks you what your role is, how do you describe it? How, what's your elevator pitch? Yeah, look, I guess my role is all about helping Kiwi Bank understand how we can deliver on our purpose of Kiwi making Kiwi better off and making it real in the organisation. That would be the sort of the, the very short elevator pitch. Um, the slightly longer version of that as well is that I'm still involved in actually, you know, developing and managing a lot of the projects that we have within Kiwi Bank, particularly in the sustainability space, and am responsible, I guess, particularly for our B Corp certification. Wonderful. So it is unique. So it's a bank. So it's, it's that's what it says on the label. And it's a New Zealand bank. And it is unique in a few ways. So it's a, like you just touched on then, it, it's a B Corp certification. It's also more recently gained some ownership from our government, but it's it's a, a company that's operating in a free market. Yeah, just describe a bit about its uniqueness from your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I guess Kiwi Bank's always had a very unique positioning because we were set up for a very specific reason, right? So we were set up by the government in the early 2000s to try and have a... I guess, a, a viable local alternative to the foreign-owned banks. Very topical at the moment, obviously. And so, you know, when you think about this concept of purpose, and when we started to delve into it at Kiwi Bank, I think one of the things that became very, very clear is that we always had a purpose. You know, we always existed for something that was quite 
fundamental to who we were and why we even, you know, started in the first place, right? It was to to do something different for the benefit of the entire country. Mm. And I think that's been something that has taken us a while to get clarity really on exactly what, you know, sort of what my role is about now, which is, okay, well, cool. We say that we exist for something different, but how are you actually doing that? How can you demonstrate to New Zealand and, and to ourselves that we are actually living up to that purpose? So that's sort of one of the key things that I'm involved in now. But the evolution of that has always been very natural because, you know, people choose KiwiBank either as a customer or as an employee because they believe in what we stand for. They believe that we have the ability to do something different and that we are sort of a bank that is by and for New Zealanders. So I think it's a really exciting opportunity. It's what drew me to work at Kiwi Bank when I sort of first, you know, saw the original role that I had, which wasn't head of purpose and sustainability. It was essentially sort of a corporate social responsibility manager role, very different to what I'm doing now. But I saw that opportunity to to really build out the program of work that we have now, which is much, much, much more strategically integrated and much more, you know, deliberate in what we're doing and how we do it. Yeah, because you touched on it there, which is purpose has existed in businesses forever. You know, like mm. businesses have been using what they do to make a positive impact and do good. But just thinking about your career, so you joined as sort of head of corporate social responsibility. And in many ways, your role and tracking your role is kind of shows that purpose has become even more central to the bank and how they do things. So I guess that's lots of things like how they treat their vulnerable clients, their, their staff, people borrow money for them, how they you know recall debt or don't. But yeah, tell us about that kind of rethinking of corporate responsibility or purpose in your time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's totally changed, right? So when I joined, I think one of the key things that, that I identified quite early on is that we did some really, really great stuff. You know, we had a lot of amazing partnerships and some of those partnerships still endure today. But a lot of, I guess, how we were delivering on our purpose was through our external partnerships. So to put it sort of a little bit crudely, you know, we were sort of almost outsourcing our impact. And that's not to downplay the importance of those partnerships. And I think partnerships play a really, really important role in amplifying and being able to maximise the impact that an organisation can have because, you know, a lot of the problems that we're leaning into are really, really big and complex and we can't solve them on our own and sometimes we're constrained in how we can solve them as well. So partnerships play an important role there. When we looked at our purpose and we tried to figure out what were the things that we should really be focusing on, we looked at this combination of sort of passions. So what have we already already demonstrated that we're passionate about and that we've already done some good work to try and solve these issues? Strength, so what do we naturally do? Where do we naturally play as a business? And how can we sort of use that to inform what we're focusing on? And impact, so what actually does New Zealand need right now from us? And using that frame was quite a good lens to be able to, you know, sort of, I guess, really hold ourselves accountable to actually are we stretching ourselves enough with what we mean when we're talking about these goals and how we're going to deliver on purpose, but also refine and focus in on what we can do because, you know, a lot of large corporates, but as a bank and particularly as a bank with a brand like like ours, as I, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, that was set up with a very clear purpose. You know, there are so many different things that potentially could have 
aligned with that very high level purpose statement of Kiwi making Kiwi better off. You can almost sort of, it's great because it unifies people, but it's the challenge with it is it's so broad that it can actually be all encompassing and almost anything can fit into that. So using that sort of passion, strength and impact lens for us was really useful. And so that's how we ended up with sort of three clear purpose goals that we have now. So those are sort of long-term goals out to 2030, which have specific targets associated with them. And that's really what we're focusing on now in terms of how we'll deliver on our purpose. The sustainability side of things as well as then, well, how do we ensure that everything that we're trying to achieve externally in the world and, and sort of how we're trying to create a positive impact through our customers, communities and stakeholders is also brought into the way in which we run our business and sort of how we make decisions internally, as you spoke about before, in terms of how we look after our people, you know, the culture that we're trying to create, how we manage our environmental impact, how we think about our procurement and our, all of our different systems. So that's sort of the other side of it, and that's how the two things really come together. But also just to speak quickly to what those three goals are. So in terms of our three sort of long-term purpose goals, they're around, we believe that by 2030, all tamariki, so all Kiwi children, should have access to quality financial education, which is embedded in the curriculum. So that for us is really a systemic goal and seeing well, how do we shape the conversation around financial education in schools and, and help encourage that to be properly embedded and ensure that that is of quality. And then the other two are more looking at well, how do we actually rethink the way in which we deliver products and services and banking for New Zealand. And so that is, by 2030, we want to help 2 million Kiwi take action to secure their financial future, which is really looking at how do we help them sort of spend, save, borrow and plan to achieve the outcomes that they want from life, which often is not material at all, but actually, you know, finance is sort of the facilitator and the enabler of those futures that people are, are trying to create. And then the third one is that we want to provide $2 billion in, in finance, sustainable finance, essentially, to support Kiwi businesses and predominantly sort of the small to medium enterprises which make up the majority of New Zealand's economy. Wonderful. And it becomes a competitive advantage, doesn't it? So choosing... Like you've got to, the crucial thing is you measure what those goals that you just described, that that's really cr- and you, and you put equal weight on them as well. That's crucial. Mm. But being a B Corp, which is a tough certification, something you have to do every two years, really, you know, walking the talk, if you like, mm. but that becoming a competitive advantage because you guys, you have to compete, don't you? Like you have to attract customers. You have to be a viable commercial entity. Definitely. But people will be choosing you like, you know, Stop the press, but I just recently switched mortgages <laughs> and chose Kiwi Bank <laughs> awesome. partially because, and this is not an advert for Kiwi Bank, is it, Julie? But <laughs> partially because you guys are a B Corp. That was definitely playing in my mind. But yeah, yeah like, talk I, to and me. I think, you know, how B Corp fits into this is a really important and interesting part of this picture, right? So we set these long term goals and then we started to go, okay, well, cool, we've got these goals. We're going to start measuring and measuring them, holding ourselves accountable, you know. rethinking, you know, using this, I guess, as a lens when we're rethinking product and service design. But how do we actually know if we're on track? And so that's where B Corp came in. And I think it's been really interesting. You know, we used it initially as a bit of a, yeah, almost like a baseline sort of assessment to see, well, we think we're doing all these great things, but actually, you know, how does that stack up in terms of best practice, international, global standards? And it was really useful from that, that perspective. But I think now that we have achieved the certification, what it's also showing is that for for customers, be it businesses or individuals, 
it gives them some confidence that actually a lot of the things that we say we're doing, we are actually genuinely doing, right? Because we've been through this rigorous process. We've had the B Corp analysts actually looking into all of our policies, all of the evidence that we had to provide. And they've provided us with a score that shows that, you know, we're, we're not perfect. We've definitely got a lot more that we can we can do and how we can improve. But we're on the journey and we're committed to that transparency and we're committed to that improvement. And it's it has been really interesting. You talk about, you know, how this has become a competitive advantage for us. We were always very clear that we weren't going to do B Corp. You know, we weren't going to necessarily do it to win customers. That wasn't the primary driver. The primary driver was to have this you know, external verification, as I've sort of talked about, the baselining, the, the transparency, the accountability. And if customers chose to join us because of that, then that's great. But I think what's really, it has been really amazing to see the amount of customers that are choosing Kiwi Bank because of the certification, because they have confidence that we do, you know, are actually genuine in what we're saying and that they can, they can understand that they can get behind it. And I've had a lot of customers and people across the bank say to me that, you know, they did exactly this. They joined because, you know, obviously it's not the deciding factor. There has to be, you know, we also have to have the products and services that people want. We have to be available when they, when they want to engage with us. All of those things that I sort of think of as a bit more sort of like a hygiene factors of just running a bank and running a commercial business. But B Corp is sort of the thing that the driver that makes us that appealing option to actually switch because banking, like a lot of industries like energy and that sort of stuff is, you know, there's a lot of apathy, right? It's a, it's a bit of a pain to change your bank. You've got all your payments set up with your current bank account. Why would you bother to do that? So for customers to actually make that switch, it does take quite a lot of work. And I've been really, really pleased and impressed with the amount of customers that we've seen who have joined us. We're not sort of formally tracking it so I can't give you a number but just anecdotally across the business and from what customers say to me it definitely is something that really is informing their choice so which has been really really cool yeah you know really really nice to see alignment of values are becoming becoming more important so just changing tact and and going back to you know your childhood was there anything growing up that kind of set the the scene or the tone for the choices you'd make around career and jobs yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of sort of pivotal things. I'd say, you know, I, I grew up in a sort of fairly middle class, maybe even sort of upper middle class Auckland family. So I definitely, you know, didn't was never deprived or never wanted for anything. But my parents are very, I'd say probably very humble people and very genuine and authentic people. Mum spent most of her career either sort of working for charities or working for you know, in, in sort of things like nursing and first aid and all of that sort of stuff. So I think I always really saw the value of giving back and the value of community. And probably in some ways, I think for me, and I don't know <laughs> know why this is really, but growing up in a sort of a fairly privileged childhood, to be honest, I think I was always very conscious of that. And I, I sort of, particularly in my teens, started to feel quite uncomfortable about that and sort of and I think that is one of the things that I have tried to do from, you know, the decisions I made around what to study and where to go to study. And I, you know, committed to working all the way through uni and, and then going overseas and traveling in Latin America. I think I really wanted to use my privilege, but and not sort of, you know, I, I'm never going to change that, but also be conscious of that and, and try and see how I could actually, yeah, use, use the opportunities and the advantages that I'd been given to to try and give back 
in some way. And so, you know, I, I hope that what I'm doing now is actually creating some of that long-term benefit and broader community benefit as well. Yeah, so, so you left Auckland you, and you went to university in, in Wellington and fo- international studies was, a, was the focus for you. Like, hmm. did you feel like you kind of grew up a bit and stepped out of the, the comfort zone <laughs> yeah. in that move? Yeah, definitely. I love my uni time. I um, I really, you know, had had a great time. Wellington was an awesome city for me because it had that good mix of great uni culture, but also, you know, it was still a city. So you still had, you know, concerts and art galleries and a bit of that that broader culture. And you're down in Wellington where, you know, I think you've got some really diverse perspectives because of the government nature of things. So, yeah, I had a great time and I was, I think, fortunate for me in that by choosing to work, you know, get part-time jobs all the way through when I was studying, I met lots of people who weren't, you know, exactly the same age as me, weren't all studying the same things as me. And I flatted in a big flat of sort of 14 to 18 people, depending on the day. And so I really got, like, really loved being able to yeah, meet people who I would, would never have otherwise met if I had stayed in, in Auckland and in particular, I guess, at that point in time, probably these days as well, if you grow up in Auckland, your parents are still here and you go to university, I probably would have stayed living with them. So now I, I had a, an amazing time in Wellington and I think really sort of solidified that passion I have for sort of thinking about sustainable de- development and community development, moving more a little bit now to what I was studying. Yeah. So international relations at the time was a pretty evolving field. And what you look at there is sort of, you know, either you can go into diplomacy, which was never something that particularly interests me. You can go into working for, you know, your big international organisations like IMF, UN, all of that sort of stuff. Or there was this very emerging field around like the sustainable community development side of things. So this is back in sort of the 2000s where we were just learning about, you know, how to actually think about fair trade um, cooperatives for, you know, development in places like Africa and Latin America and, and Asia as alternative models to sort of the monocropping that they'd previously done. And so I was really fascinated with those models and, and I could see the potential for actually, you know, it's sort of in some ways it's a bit like the old adage of teach a man to fish, right, or teach a person to fish. But I was really, really fascinated to see some of that stuff in action. I could just see the potential. I could see it as, you know, potentially quite revolutionary as well in terms of just changing our paradigm around, you know, what development could be and actually sort of some of the self-determination in that community community development side of stuff, which was one of the primary drivers, I think, for me. In, yeah, and then sort of eventually when I finished university, deciding to go travel in Latin America. So instead of doing my OE to, to England um, or Canada, like most people do, you know, jumping on a, buying a one-way ticket and jumping on a plane to Buenos Aires, as like a 22-year-old, I think at the time, by my 22-year-old female by myself, was really just to see what I could learn and what I could, you know, understand and experience in real life, you know, getting out of the textbooks, I guess. And so you tell your parents, I've booked a one-way flight to Argentina. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> I don't speak a word of Spanish, or maybe no, you did. not much. So, what? so you arrive in Argentina, it's like, Wow. Yeah. I mean, both of my parents had traveled in Africa by themselves at similar ages. So I think maybe I had grown up with those stories around me. And so, and they were pretty supportive, actually. They, 
you know, they thought it was a great idea. And I think for me, it's, yeah, it, totally the experience was absolutely life-changing, not just because I met my partner and, you know, brought him back very expensive souvenir, but just all of the, all of the experiences, all of the people that I met and all of the, the different, yeah, sort of places that I got to see and, and live in as well. But, you know, there's, and there's so many different perceptions about somewhere like Latin America. But honestly, I most of the time felt incredibly safe, was incredibly welcomed into people's homes. Like, I remember one time, I think it was actually in Argentina or maybe Chile, I was waiting for a, a bus. I'd gotten off one other bus and the connection was going to take two hours. Um, and the one of the people that was sitting next to me on the first bus ride sort of started talking to me and, and heard that there was a bit of uh, wait. And they just invited me back to have dinner with their family, you know, like in their house. They didn't have much, but yeah. like mm. that, I don't, I don't know, just like such amazing experiences. And this is still when I could barely speak a word of Spanish. So, I mean, it was a fairly awkward dinner where you can't really communicate with the people, but, you know, also quite an incredible experience that I think I'm very lucky to have had. What did you learn about yourself? Really interesting question. Um I think I learned that I'm probably a little bit more adventurous than I'd thought previously. Um, and that I'm definitely not afraid of change. I also think I learned that I'm quite happy. I don't know if I learned that I was quite happy to be by myself or if I developed that as I was going, but I actually like, you know, am, am quite, yeah, was quite comfortable going off on, on hikes by myself and sometimes probably even preferred it to, you know, to always being in massive, massive groups of people. But, you know, some of the hard, like it's, it was, it definitely wasn't always easy. It was quite hard to make friends. You know, I'm not, someone who is super super outgoing and so I probably make friends slower than other people so you know sometimes it was quite lonely um and I wondered what on earth I was doing and why I'd chosen to do this so sort of you know building some some resilience and tenacity throughout it all I was also traveling through the GFC so the other thing I probably learned about myself is that I've got quite a my money personality is definitely that I prefer to be a saver um, so I found that quite challenging when sort of my savings, my effective savings, because I was with New Zealand dollars and traveling overseas and the currency sort of tanked overnight. Um, and so I had about half the money that I, I thought I had. And that caused me quite a lot of, of stress for a while. And then I finally realized, actually, instead of just trying to sort of, you know, eke things out and live sort of almost b- below the poverty line some days, I may as well just make sure that I was actually enjoying my travels and doing the most out of it and if I ran out of money then I'd figure out what I could do you know there's I could get a job I could always go home yeah all of that sort of stuff so yeah I mean yeah it's I mean it was a wee while ago now so I'm dredging up some old memories but yeah I think when you're spending that much time with yourself you learn learn a lot about yourself yeah absolutely and that kind of like lots of experiences out of your comfort zone having to think about your approach to money, dealing with tricky situations. So how, lo- how long were you away in Latin America and, and what were the countries that you, because you didn't, you didn't just stay in Argentina. No, you? no, no. So I, so I sort of, my, my journey was I traveled, yeah, Argentina, um, tried to go to Paraguay, which was an epic failure because coming from New Zealand, I didn't quite realize how to cross a land border. But anyway, so quickly <laughs> went back into Argentina after that. Then went sort of Chile, Bolivia, Peru. And ended up in Ecuador. I decided in Ecuador I got a little job, sort of like a volunteer um, thing, working in a hostel and ended up staying there for about two months, both in Quito, which is the the capital city, and then they had like a 
they were building an eco resort out in um, sort of one of the volcanic regions. It's almost like, I guess, on the hills of like Taranaki would sort of be the equivalent here. And so I went out and helped them sort of, they were still building the eco resort at the time. So I was building a greenhouse and helping them get the the composting systems up and running and all of that sort of stuff. And so you could tell from sort of the background that I've already given you, I absolutely loved that and seeing those systems really come to life. Um, and that was cool as well for me in terms of making some really strong friendships that you know, I actually still have today with all the, the other volunteers who were working at the time. And then after that, I just decided to keep sort of moving up. We were a friend that I've made at that time. We were sort of thinking, oh, maybe we could get to Panama and try and work on the cruise ships to make a bit of money to keep to be able to keep traveling, which didn't actually ever eventuate. We didn't quite. There, basically, there were no jobs on the cruise ships in the middle of the GFC, which is probably not a shock to anyone apart from ourselves at the time. But we did go on this quite sort of adventurous journey through Colombia and Panama. And because the standard way to get from Colombia to Panama at the time was you had to pay sort of $200 to go on a beautiful like five-day sort of yachting trip, but that was a bit out of our reach, we decided to do the the non-standard fairly dangerous way of trying to cross by land as much as possible. You can't can't actually go through land because it's dense rainforest, but, you know, there's only a small part that you have to go by boat. So we sort of set off on this journey, which was supposed to take about three days and ended up taking nine for various reasons, but really cool. And it's sort of cost us $20 for all included um, and saw some amazing Indigenous communities that lots of people would never face into and then sort of ended up in Panama and finally ended up in, in Guatemala, which is where I, I spent two years living and working. Um, and that's where my partner's from. So all up, it was around three years in Latin America. And you talked about an expensive souvenir. So <laughs> he's from Guatemala and he, he came with you back to New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. We've had lots of Dr. Ropasa jokes. I think most New Zealand, I don't know if you would have been in New Zealand at the time, but it was a shortened street. This is, was it the first line of? It, um, it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a soap for our international listeners. There's a, a soap in New Zealand based in a hospital, a medical centre, and um, one of the main characters talks about Guatemala in the opening line, doesn't he? So which just kind of reverberates around New Zealand culture for a long time. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it was just this country which was so foreign to New Zealand at, at that point in time, and whatever it was, the nineties. They just thought it was so ridiculous, and then I managed to find someone from there. So, yeah, we've been back here for about uh, 11 or 12 years now. Sort of summer, like I'm thinking, you know, holiday romance. Like, that's not, it's also not an easy thing for someone, for him to make decisions to, to leave, to follow you, what, straight back to New Zealand? Like, was it always like a, as soon as you met, you were like, right, this is what's going to happen, or? No, no, not really. We sort of, so we met working at, yeah, working at the place that I worked for the first year I was in Guatemala and didn't get together until about the end of that year. So we'd known each other for quite a while before we actually got together and then spent another year in a diff- slightly different town living together. So we had, you know, had quite, a, I guess, the re- it's quite an intense start to the relationship in some ways. After About a month after getting together, we sort of started living together. And then at the end of that year, I just sort of said to him, hey, I think I'm I think I'm ready to go home. I think, you know, I love Guatemala. It's an, it's an incredible place, very special place. But for my career at the time, I was, you know, I was quite constrained in where I could work. I didn't have the financial means to just 
volunteer, you know, some of the amazing not-for-profits that are doing great work there and there's not a lot of jobs in those organisations. So I was largely constrained to sort of working in like your classic hospo industries and so I was I was really ready to, to sort of make that change and come back to New Zealand. So I sort of said, hey, what do you, what do you think? And he went, okay, we'll, we'll try it, you know, we'll see, see how it goes. And yeah, so we came back, he'd never been to New Zealand. My parents had come out and visited me when I was over there so that he had met them and one of my friends as well who had come to visit us. But yeah, never, never been here, never sort of lived anywhere but Guatemala. Spoke English, so it was better than, than I was when I, when I went to Latin America. But yeah, I mean, there's been lots of, lots of twists and turns and learnings along the way, but we're still, we're still here. We're still happy. Yeah. And Guatemala, like real political turmoil at times, eh? Like yeah. in economically really challenging. Huge amount of corruption. I think is, yeah. you know, coming from New Zealand, I think we can't really understand the level of corruption that's just embedded. I mean, people would say to me, like, you know, in the small town that we lived in, the mayor of the town had a giant mansion, like, you know, sort of three-story, huge, huge house. This was in a town with where most people were subsistence farmers. There was no electricity, no running water, no sanitation in most of the houses. And then this guy has like a massive house, also three cars, even though there was no road getting into the town because it was accessible by boat only. So why he needed three cars was beyond most of us. But people would just say, oh, that's that's the way it is. You know, that's what happens here, which I really, really struggled with. But that is their history. That's their reality. And, and whilst they're trying to change it, it will take a long time to unpick pick a lot of that. So again, that was quite hard for me living here. And that's one of the things that you know, he's loved coming here as sort of the safety and security. You know, he still tells people about the day when he was on Queen Street, which, yeah, for international listeners, that's sort of the main street in our largest city in Auckland. And someone had stopped in their car, run to get something from the shop and literally left the keys in the car with the door open. No one else, no one left in the car, just you know, sitting sitting on the main street and no one did anything. You know, the car was still there. He was like, if that had happened in Guatemala, he would have the car wouldn't have been there when, when they got back, right? So nice to have those sort of positive cultural shocks as well as some of the more sort of, you know, not being able to understand what we were saying or anything like that. Yeah. And returning to New Zealand, you said that you you know, that's something you wanted to do, it wasn't forced on you, but you, you arrived back and was that challenging or was it fairly straightforward? Like what, what did, how did you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely a bit of a shock. I think I mentioned before that I, the GFC sort of happened whilst I was away. So I'd left pre-GFC and I think coming back in 2011 when we were very much in that post-GFC environment was, was actually really challenging and I wasn't prepared for that at all. You know, there, there weren't that many jobs around. There was quite a lot of resistance, particularly to my partner from an employment perspective, not being, you know, a New Zealand national, not having a sort of classic name. But I also, you know, I think I managed to find jobs relatively quickly and just sort of, you know, fairly a sort of office admin type roles just to get back into the swing of things in New Zealand. And one thing I did quite deliberately after I've been working in those jobs for a wee while is I just realised that I wanted to be quite deliberate in what my next move was. So I probably stayed in one of the jobs longer than I, I would have liked to, but, but it was because I was waiting for that right opportunity. And I think that was really, actually in hindsight, really important for me because it meant that I landed 
um, the role at Sustainable Business Network, which for me in my career just, I think, really transformed and really set me up for the success that I have today because Sustainable Business Network sort of a, relative, a small sort of not-for-profit organisation but works with around 500 different businesses all around New Zealand, all sorts of, you know, different sizes, industries um, and interest at that time in sustainability. So I learnt so much and got exposure to so many different sides of sustainability and so many different challenges that it was really wonderful for me, from my experience, you know, very much active development on the job, like everything that I did, I was, you know, constantly learning on the job and had amazing managers at the time who really, you know, supported me, but also pushed me to go, go further and get involved in some of the quite challenging and strategic projects, particularly things around procurement and investment at the time. But yeah, I mean, it gave me such an amazing grounding in sustainability that I think I couldn't have got anywhere else. Yeah, we've had Rachel Brown on on Purposely, which oh, is cool. great. She's the founder, CEO of SBN. Yes. And yeah, like you say, what strikes me about the organisation is sort of, you know, they were banging this drum long way before it was mainstream and, and um, that the door wasn't open to it for a lot of people. Mm. But see, that real, your sort of love for sustainability and, and you know, the mission part of it did you feel a bit outraged or did you feel a bit angry about what was going on yeah definitely and I I guess I wanted to do something to yeah I wanted to be involved in sort of solving some of the issues one of the I think things that really was a quite a pivotal experience for me was when I was back in Guatemala working in this small sort of lakeside town we had the lake had an algal bloom which was caused basically because people had introduced fish species from the US thinking that it would be good for tourism. And overseas, foreign people had introduced these fish species thinking it would be good for tourism in the 70s. And, you know, they essentially obliterated the ecosystem and taken out all of the, the beneficial fish and, and different species that were living in the lake. And so eventually, by the time I was there, they had this massive algal bloom. But it was really quite horrific at the time. Like, it doesn't sound that bad, but the entire lake was sort of covered in this horrific black brown sludge. But everyone living around the lake depends on that lake for their livelihood, be it tourism, um, water, food, or transport. And so seeing this happen to the lake was pretty awful and no one knew what was happening, why it was happening, sort of what, what the environmental reason for it was. And we've spoken a little bit about sort of the corruption and the corrupt systems in Guatemala, but part of that as well as also the sort of mistrust of all authority and a lot of the, the power structures that are there. And so when we were as a community trying to sort of understand this and sort of what can we do to solve this problem, it was really, really hard. We were trying to work with the authorities, we're trying to work with scientists, you know, with the community, but no one really wanted to work together because they didn't trust each other and they didn't know what their motivations were. And so I had this quite, you know, visceral reaction to experiencing all of this and being so saddened by the environmental destruction that was happening, but even more saddened because it seemed like the real barrier to being able to solve this problem wasn't the environmental problem because actually, you know, there were various solutions that that people had proposed that all could have been viable, but actually it was that the people couldn't get together and and work together. They couldn't agree, basically, and they couldn't trust each other enough to start to sort of work on some of these solutions. So I think for me, it was a really interesting time when I learned about, well, A, the, the impact that environmental destruction can have 
for so many different reasons and in so many different dimensions, but also that the way in which we can act, the only way in which we're going to solve some of these environmental problems is by understanding people and getting people to work together on this. We eventually actually ended, managed to get that collaboration happening. And it was a really interesting story where we managed to do this by engaging a lot of the elderly women in the community who weren't in positions of power. You know, we couldn't communicate with them directly because they spoke an Indigenous language that we didn't speak. So we had to use translators in the community. But as soon as we explained things to the women and got them to understand why what the scientists were saying made sense and how they were trying to actually help the community, those women managed to get everyone else in the community on board and sort of within a week we had some of that agreement around solutions and people actually coming together and working together on it. So it was a really interesting story around you know, understanding, I guess, some of the barriers, but also who are your key influences and how can you actually work to understand their motivations, their fears, and work with them to, to try and create that change as well. Great learning. And you find yourself using these learnings in your role with you know, Sustainable Business Network. And I guess that organisation would have been a tough one to leave. Like mm. you, you're there for four years. Sounds like a very happy four years, very mission focused. And you're, so you got a national role with them. But what was behind your thinking about leaving? I love my time there. And I think I'd just come to the point where I had done most of what I thought I could do at that time. And I needed to move out and learn learn more and particularly working within a business was one of the key things that I felt like I needed to learn so you know at SBN you're, you're constantly working with businesses but not within the business right and so I really wanted to get inside a business and start to be able to make those changes from the inside so that was my key motivation for leaving and managed to get a role at Westpac working in their sustainability team which was great so you know had a really supportive environment within Westpac and existing sort of strategies, plan action plans and that sort of stuff that I could get involved in and and really start to understand the internal mechanisms around sustainability and sustainable change. Did you find it a little bit of a difficult transition in terms of, you know, SBN is a, a non profit, <laughs> the the kind of the why, the purpose, the mission's so clear, eh? And it's it's you know, it would fulfill that part of your psyche. Yeah. But you know, shifting to well, ostensibly a, a profit-driven Australian yeah, bank. huge, huge <laughs> corporate, find... right? And banking. Yeah, definitely. I th- just an internal struggle, right, around is this really what I want to stand for? But actually the most the thing that I learned probably ultimately through SBN is that business has so much ability to make change. And, you know, actually businesses are incredible, incredible entities that yes have a bad reputation in particular at the moment I think there's a, you know obviously a lot of, of talk about the the profits of banks and what's a reasonable profit but actually at the same time some of that power enables really important investment decisions and really important change so I actually I think I probably fear found the thought of the change more or the transition harder than it actually was. I think once I was in there, you know, you realise that there's, even though you're in a big corporate, there are still just hundreds and hundreds of people who really care, are trying to do a good job and want to do the best for, you know, their people, customers, community and the environment. And so again, it's about, well, how do you, how do you enable them to contribute to that positive change? And so you're covering maternity leave and you feel like you're 
face fits or you know like it's excites you and there's some you know some, some power that you can utilize to do good so the job came up at, at kiwi bank and there was and initially it was i think we touched on it before like corporate social responsibility mm. was the uh, original role yeah 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 so so yes i mean the maternity role was ending at westpac at about the same time as uh, the role came up at Kiwi Bank, and I thought it was an, the perfect sort of next step for me in some ways. You know, at Westpac, I was part of a, a large team, large at that stage, five people in sustainability, and a much larger organisation that had quite sort of fairly embedded practices and that sort of stuff, whereas Kiwi Bank felt really exciting. You know, it was sort of the opportunity to go in and craft something and, you know, lead the development, you know, as a corporate social responsibility role, but I'd sort of even said from the first interview, I think there was an opportunity in sustainability and that's what I want to do. And it just immediately, I think, felt really values aligned from the from the get-go. And that's, I think, you know, to what we were talking about at the beginning, right, that Kiwi Bank has set up for a very different purpose and people who work for Kiwi Bank have always sort of connected with that and wanted to to deliver on that. So, so yes, yeah, so I moved to Kiwi Bank and um, it just had so many opportunities I think that I was able to develop in my time here and some great initiatives so financial education social enterprise microfinance so I guess that shift for me around CSR being kind of uh, on the side let's do some good over here to make us feel sales feel better but actually using the kind of your money your IP to make a, a difference to the world and make a difference to people like mm. that sort of stuff that got you excited? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, sort of spoken a little bit about the responsible business banking policy, which was something that I spent a long time working on, which was really going, well, you know, let's actually think about some of our core business decisions that we're making and how do we ensure that they are aligned with the long-term future we're trying to create. Another one I think that was really cool that we, initiative that we developed sort of as a result of COVID, was our is our gambling block. So where customers have the ability to block trans- gambling transactions on their debit or credit cards, really driven from the huge increase we saw throughout COVID of people spending quite a lot of money on these online gambling sites. And so, you know, just a really nice tangible solution where customers can take control and, you know, actually feel like they they can make their money work for them. And, you know, we're just doing so many, you know, so many interesting conversations that we're having at the moment that are really looking at how do we just move faster and, and do more in this space and really rethink what are the, the outcomes that our customers are getting on these products. We've also obviously developed, uh, launched the sustainable business loans this year and our partnership with Kogo. So that's really the idea behind that is how do we make it simple for small businesses to A, understand what their environmental, their carbon emissions are, and B, how do we sort of incentivize and reward better purchasing decisions to help people lower their emissions. And it's been really great to see the amount of interest with our business customers in those products and in really, you know, starting to take action to to reduce their their impact as well, which will be beneficial for everyone. Yeah, so the Kogo, just to explain a little more, is a, a sort of a, an app or a platform which uses banking data our own banking data to track carbon output or you know draw and, and new zealand new zealand base that's sort of smashing it overseas which is wonderful like just just reflecting on like where you get your motivation from and you know clearly purpose is a massive thing for you but are you a big one on uh mentors do you do things do, what do you what draw do you draw on um 
no, I don't have a mentor, but I I think it's more I do get a lot of motivation from other people. And so having that balance of, you know, feeling like there's momentum within the work that you're doing and so having some of those, I guess, key milestones and key achievements that you can keep delivering out there, but also, you know, getting out there and connecting with other people who are in either similar roles or or quite different roles, but sort of similarly missions aligned for me really really helps with my energy and motivation. I think you always learn so much from other people, but also it actually sometimes can be quite a good way to reflect on, you know, so it's it's very easy to be hard on ourselves, I think, you know, and like in a role like this, I'm sort of constantly going, I wish we could do more or go faster or, you know, but actually having that opportunity to sort of pause and reflect and sort of see how far we have come I think it is really important for me in terms of my motivation and sort of in some ways probably a form of, of self-care. <laughs> and huge, real diverse experiences, you know, from an all-girls effectively private school to one-way ticket to Buenos Aires <laughs> to living and working in Guatemala to um, picking yourself up a foreign husband <laughs> and then finding it back in your, in your country. Like, does that diversity, like, do you think that's, one of your greatest strengths, like your those experiences you have had? Definitely. I think, yeah, I, th- I think particularly the, the travel and the time I spent living and working in Guatemala particularly has taught me so much and I use those experiences. I reflect on those experiences a lot and I think I bring them into the way in which I do work, particularly thinking about sort of bringing, how do you bring people on board? How do you help people understand what's going on and really help them connect with the why of what you're doing Mm. definitely is sort of fundamental to to who I am and what I try and do in my my work so and I always encourage people you know if they're unsure about what to do either pre-uni or post-uni you know don't be afraid and sort of doing something like that right going out and seeing the world particularly if you are from New Zealand it's a we're a very small country very far away from a lot of things and there are so many different ways of doing things that you, by going out and experiencing them, I think you learn so much. Um, to one of your first questions about yourself, but also about how to do things in different ways that, that is can be quite hard to get if you if you don't go out and sort of take those opportunities. And any chances to pop back to Guatemala anytime soon? Yeah, hopefully. Well, obviously his family's all still there, so we, we try and go back. We haven't been back for a couple of years now, but yeah, nothing fixed locked in the diaries yet but but hopefully we'll get a chance to go in the next year or so julie jackson massive thank you for joining me on purposely thanks so much for having me thanks for listening to purposely podcast please subscribe and leave a review i hope you like what you're hearing because i sure do 